Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for raising tweens and teens. And today we're going to be talking with Jen Court, educational consultant in diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. All right, so we are going to talk about the wonderful things that Jen Court is doing in a little bit. And one of the things that we can tell you is that she, with many other people, are really trying to change the world. And it's a little daunting to talk to her because it has this feeling, for me anyway, that I'm not doing enough. And it made me reflect on what was the holiday Thanksgiving about and should we rethink that? And then that took me to thinking about like, you know, all the discussion about statues and whether they should come down. There's just such a bigger question about how do we deal with looking at our lifelong assumptions when we want change is everything up for grabs. Like for me, I always felt like, you know, our team is the Indians and we had a mascot named Chief Wahoo. And it just didn't seem like a big deal to change that if that was offensive to some people. Like it's not a, some people felt like it wasn't a big deal, period. But then by the same token, maybe it's not a big deal to change it, right? Like let's be respectful of the fact that there are Native Americans who are offended by that. Yeah, it's funny. I when I, when I went to college, same thing, a few years after we graduated, yeah, we were the Miami Redskins, which seems ridiculous now. I mean, it's so long ago. And I remember at the time, so that must have been 94, 95, which feels so incredibly different than now. I mean, it's so obvious <laughs> that that had to change, but I remember so much discussion going on at the time. But it does force you to think about I don't know. I mean, I think automatically it's an exercise of like, well, how would I feel if that were my culture, my race, my religion? I think we're so resistant to change. Our nature is typically resistant to change. I love this one story. So my synagogue was about to build a new building and it was incredibly controversial, like incredibly controversial. And the building was not in a position to be repaired. Like it it was like not meeting any standards. So there wasn't really a whole lot of choice, but people were so opposed to it, especially people who had been involved in the first iteration of building the synagogue. At the same time, Chautauqua Institute was trying to get to redo their big amphitheater where you sit and to, to just update it. And there were lawn signs all over the place to stop the change. They changed it. It passed and they changed it. And it doesn't look visibly different to anybody. I think there's a little more room in between so you don't have to knock into people when you're moving. But it's just such a funny thing how much like things that seem so insignificant become so such a big fighting point. Well, I think it's exactly what you said. We are all resistant to change. So anything that is not what we were doing. It's funny. I was actually even thinking just in, in the context of the pandemic how things were in March, say, right, compared to how they are now and cases. And I was thinking, wow, so in March, we were all pretty much locked down, right? And now they're trying to, there's no judgment. I'm just saying now the, a lot of the um, advice is, you know, not to travel, lockdown, da, da, da. I'm like, how would we have reacted in March if we saw the numbers where they are today, like, it's like you had to have to get there. It's like this process. I don't know. I don't know. It's just a strange thing. Just a strange thing. 
That I've always thought about. Like if on September 10th, the United States would have shut down all airspace mm-hmm. and a massive crisis that defines our nation would have been averted, we wouldn't have known it was averted. And so people would have been really angry that that had yeah. happened. So it's only in reaction. And that's a really heavy one. But I, I have this other example that always makes me laugh about resistance to change. One of the overnight camps was redoing the bunks. And they actually, until not too long ago, had outhouses for bathrooms. And so the new bunks were going to have the bathrooms in the bunk, which seems, as an adult, like the bare necessity, right? Like Totally. Not, not really a very big upgrade at that point. No, no. Those campers had petitions to save the outhouses. <laughs> Anyway, it's like, you know, if we're so resistant to change at even that level, yes. how does this happen? How does this happen? I loved your example, though, of just like, because you don't have the, you don't have the benefit of the experience of what it could have been. So I always, that takes me to when LeBron James left Cleveland and my husband, who's a diehard Cleveland fan, was so upset, but he wasn't upset <laughs> that LeBron left. It was the way he left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. dude, you, you're only saying that, but had he, he's like, no, no, I'm telling you, if he would have just left, I'm like, no, no, you don't have that experience. You can't say that. You would have been upset. Okay, total stream of conscious. Has anybody ever been broken up with in a way that they said, that was a beautiful way they broke up with me? And everyone says, no, it's the way they did it, right? Exactly. Like, it's the way they did it's it. The that makes me think of that sex in the city when Burger breaks up with, what's her name? What's Sarah Jessica Parker's Carrie? Carrie French. Yeah, he breaks up with Carrie on a post-it and it says, sorry, I can't. <laughs> I actually didn't have a problem. I didn't have a problem with that. I felt like she had she had the chance to compose herself rather than face to face with this guy who's going to break her heart. I thought, you know, a post it. Yeah, not the worst thing. Uh, (laughs) I guess that's the equivalent of today's text, right? It was a post it at the time. Today it would be a text, I guess. One of my kids had a plan to break up with somebody taking the person out to dinner. Yeah. And it didn't. It didn't end up going out going that way. Yeah. And I was like, why would that be a good plan to have? <laughs> then what do you do? You sit and have dinner together. And that person said, "Well, I wanted to be nice." So there's you don't win. There's no. No, winning. it's true. <laughs> it's true. But that's just the way. Maybe if she had done it over dessert, you know, I would have preferred. It was the the way she did it over dinner. <laughs> Oh, yeah, dessert would have been fine. <laughs> exactly. And, like, you know what? If it wasn't a post-it note, but it was in an envelope with, like, exactly. Ne- That's- yeah, like, you know, really, there's no good way. Anyway, we really have a very profound discussion with Jen Court coming up. And I think that even though most of us can't see our way toward change— Jen is in a field where that's what it's all about. It's all of us trying to look and see, reevaluate, and think things new. And maybe they're just, maybe we have to kind of throw it all up in the air and consider that Chief Wahoo no longer belongs with the Indians. So up next is our conversation with Jen. We can't wait for you to join us. You've got questions, we've got answers. 
business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our guest today is Jen Court. Jen Court is a diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice consultant working with schools and organizations in multiple countries. As an educator and clinical social worker, Jen works with groups to create sustainable and systemic change and to live out their missions regarding diversity and inclusion. Her goal is to create spaces where students and all community members can be seen and heard while learning to be visible and use their voices in productive ways. Jen, you devote your time to work around equity, diversity, inclusion, and justice. While we were drawn to that title, we don't really know exactly what that means. So can you give us a little bit of a description of what it is you do with your day? Oh, gosh, yes. I spend a lot of my day working with in two pockets, one being the structures of schools and organizations that are holding inequity in place, so their policies and practices, and then the other being working with the people and helping to get us all on the same page with having common language, with understanding that you know admitting your bias means admitting you're human, not admitting that you're a bad person, and really trying to help people both see themselves in the conversation of affecting change around equity, diversity, inclusion, and justice, as well as helping to break down barriers between those groups. So I spend time, like today, I'm with you all. Thank you for inviting me. I just recorded a session an hour ago for three school districts that are focusing on talking about being white. And then this afternoon, I'm teaching two parent classes, and um, I'll be working with some students around their leadership program. So in Phyllis Fagel's Washington Post article, you are quoted as saying the following, as a white parent and educator, I find that white parents often feel ill-equipped to have these conversations because of their lack of experience talking about race and therefore may avoid them altogether. What white people need to do instead in order to raise anti-racists is examine their racial identity and do their own work through reading, listening, talking to other white people, and resisting taxing black people to be their educators or to affirm them as good people. This can all be so confusing in, in this <laughs> yeah. environment, especially when white people are being told that book clubs aren't enough. Um, can you explain what you mean and help, help, us, um, help us get our heads around that? Yeah, I mean, I think book clubs are fantastic if our book clubs are really focused on deepening our understanding and not on validating ourselves as good white people. So I think book clubs are great, but it's not all that we do. Reading about race is not going to eliminate the racial issues in our country. We need to be developing a positive racial identity. Everyone needs a positive racial identity. White kids need to know that they're white and that that comes with societal privileges that they can use to break down barriers. Students of color need to have a positive racial identity. Um, We need to all look at the fact that racism affects everybody in this country. It's not one side or the other. And so 
I think book clubs are fantastic. But I saw after the the murder of George Floyd, there was this huge uptick. I, if I had a nickel for every time I was asked for the book to, to give to parents, I would have been a very wealthy woman. And I kept saying, here are a series of books, but also listen to TED Talks and articles and blogs and have those that have conflicting viewpoints and read authors of color and authors who are white and allow yourself to have some tension with those conversations instead of choosing a book that kind of a lot of the books that I saw people choosing were very validating of their perspective and their experience and not challenging for it. On the other hand, I don't want people to dive so deep in that they're so challenged that they can't move. (laughs) So it's kind of a back and forth. And in in my dream world, we would be reading some books of all different authors. We'd be reading articles and blogs and we'd be reading TED, listening to TED Talks and podcasts and having multiple perspectives and allowing those tensions to sit with us and think about how we manage the tensions instead of focusing on trying to be comfortable, because that's a question that I get all the time. How do we make people comfortable with these conversations? And it's really not my goal. My goal is how do we help people to be uncomfortable enough to affect change, but not so uncomfortable that they can't grow? I love what you say about the word tension, that being you know comfortable on one hand and then tension on the other hand. And tension is a good word because I remember with all the reading I've been doing, feeling very squirmy and being uncomfortable and and being okay that it was uncomfortable, right? It's giving yourself that that latitude that you're learning, I hope, right? When you're having that squirmy feeling. So I will also say that the the ingesting of all this information, it has changed me dramatically from where I was to where I am today, but I'm still stuck on that next part of what you're saying, which is and let that be a jumping a starting point to jump off and do something. And the place that I think a lot of people are getting stuck right now is, what do you do? Like, okay, so now you've read the books, you've changed the way you understand systemic racism, you see that something has to change dramatically. What does an individual do to make that happen? I think, first of all, don't stop there. It's not examining our bias and examining our privilege is something is a lifelong process. And we, as those of us who identify as white, have to undo some things before we can do some things. And what I mean by that is we were raised to believe that if we said we were biased, we were also saying we're racist. Or if we said that we had privilege, we were also saying that we were elitist and racist. And neither of those are true. Being biased is means you're human. We all have biases. And being privileged means, or having privilege or experienced privilege means that you're part of society today. So we have to undo that and then do more on what we can do going forward. We're talking about slow, meaningful, sustainable work. We're not talking about big flash in the pan. That's not how this country is going to change. It's not how a country that is literally founded on systemic racism is going to grow and change by doing quick things that we don't have the energy for. So it is very much, it's not even a marathon. It's like one of those, I don't even know what they're called, like with those massive marathons where you're running across Australia. Um, Like an Ironman or something crazy like that. Yes, (laughs) it's it's not a sprint. So we need to try different things. It's kind of like, If you're doing the same thing over and over again, you get too used to it. So maybe you're reading some books and having some conversations, and then maybe you're shifting to how could I volunteer and not do four 
but do with other communities. And then maybe you're shifting to examining your bias and making sure that you are engaging in practices and visiting programs and businesses that are supporting underserved communities. And then all of it, if we have kids, it's how are we talking with our kids about this and constantly in conversation with our kids. So the now what is for you to decide, but it's something that it's a, it's a decision that we need to make every day. Trey Garnett, who um, was an intern at Cultures of Dignity, he was on one of my the first episodes of my podcast, and he said, your allyship card needs to be renewed every day. And I just loved that. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so important because a lot of us were raised, if we say, you know, I care about this, then we're being an ally, but that's not enough. We have to be helping to break down those barriers in between groups. White privilege, we, we throw that word out there. There's a book with the, by that title, and it really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Um, and it, it somehow it's much more loaded than I think it's meant to be necessarily. How do we explain that phrase, maybe in a way that's more palatable? So I wish there was as much energy spent on breaking down the barrier with white privilege as there is trying to resist naming that you have white privilege. Like if we could harness that energy, we could really affect some change. So when I think about privilege, I think about it in a few ways. It's unearned advantage, it's access and opportunities, it's freedom from harm because of your social identifier. And so when you think about that, that's not a good or bad. And for a long time, I think the word privilege was weaponized. You have white privilege, you have male privilege, and yes, those are true, but also it didn't make it so that we felt like we could engage with the conversation. So I think we just have to name, like if you identify as white, which even for, I'm sure you have some listeners who don't who are using the word Caucasian, not white. If you say Caucasian, you're white, and there's a whole other history with that. If you identify as white, then you have to understand it's there's no like don't spend time and energy trying to fight this. Just embrace that there's privilege ascribed from society. You didn't ask for it. You aren't requesting it, but you get it. And so there's ascribed privilege is one thing. And that's where I think a lot of people get hung up. But then there's assumed privilege and that we can really do something about. Assumed privilege is when I know that I experience privilege because of my social identifier and I'm benefiting from it or I can choose not to benefit from it, or I can choose to use it to help for social justice. So the assumed privilege, we have complete, we have a great deal of control over. Ascribed privilege, we have no control over, and we didn't ask for it. It's unearned by its very definition. And so this feeling of guilt and resisting it is energy that is better spent focusing on our assumed privilege. That's excellent. Here's another layer to that, though. How do we explain white privilege to white people who've grown up with little or no financial security or class privilege or what does that sound like and look like? Such a common question um, that comes up all the time. So if we think of our social identifiers, our social identifiers are the labels we give ourselves and we have a lot of them, our gender, race, beliefs, sexual orientation, socioeconomics, which is where the, your financial experiences were as a child. And of course, we know that race and socioeconomics are often really linked together as well as socioeconomics and education. So those are, while there's a lot of crossover, the intersections between those in terms of our experiences, there is not an intersection in terms of privileges, meaning 
an abundance of privilege in one so for one social identifier is not negated by a lack of privilege in another. These are separate strands. I grew up, I'm not kidding, dirt poor. I lived in a school bus. We grew our own food. We didn't have running water or electricity. And yet I still experienced white privilege. And so the challenge here is that it's helping people to understand and I, that intersectionality is about our experiences with our social identifiers. The intersection of privileges does not work so that one cancels out the other. So what I say to people in this conversation happens all the time when we're having these discussions is you had a lack of socioeconomic privilege and that brings a lot of challenge and pain for many of us. And yet still you experience white privilege. And so you need to honor both. I think what happens a lot, and I know early on in my career when where I would get stuck with some folks around this conversation is when I look back, I feel like they might've felt I was trying to talk them out of their lack of socioeconomic privilege instead of understanding that that it's true and it's weighty. And, you know, socioeconomic status is the is the social identifier that people go to extreme, not the only one, but one that people go to extreme lengths to hide. There's a lot of shame involved in it. It's thought to be choice and it's often not. So instead, I think we need to honor the lack of socioeconomic privilege and what that does to a person growing up and also sit next to our white privilege and what that does to a person growing up. That's excellent. Thank you. That helped me understand it. Actually, I I appreciate that. On your podcast, you talk about decentering whiteness and speaking with people of color and not over them. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So it's really focusing on not speaking over, through, or around other people, period. But then being particularly mindful of that when you are in a group that has more privilege ascribed to it than others. So if you are, if you identify as male and you're with females, if you identify as white and you're with people of color, or, you know, let's mix those up too, just being really mindful of that. One of the things that we know, decentering whiteness, the way I think about this and, and how we know what we know about racism is that whiteness has been centered as the norm in this country. That everything, you know, you're white, that's normal, and everything else is different. Instead of, we need to move away f- so that we are in a place where everybody's experience is part of the fabric of the whole. You think about textbooks. Most textbooks in this country were written with a white narrative from a white perspective. When you think about the numbers of our students who do not see people who look like them in their schools, on the teaching staff, or in their in their in the posters around their schools, So it's very much white and other. And I remember, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I had a psychologist come to observe one of my students. And the teacher was trying so hard to describe the student without naming her race. And so she was going to all these lengths trying not to name her race. And then finally, the psychologist said, so she's black and she's wearing a red shirt. And next time I come, I'm going to observe that boy. And I'd like you to also say, so he's white and he's wearing whatever color shirt he's wearing today. So even in language, you hear often people will describe the race or name the race of somebody who is not white, but they won't name the race of somebody who is white. So that's because whiteness has become very centered. And we need to really be listening to each other more so that we're honoring the experiences of everyone and not certainly speaking for and definitely not speaking through or around people. So our kids seem to be doing a much better job with this than we are. 
Um, and we actually had a panel with five black teen teen kids and five white teen kids. And it was just, I mean, it made me cry because I just couldn't believe how they could have these conversations with such ease. And there was a deep understanding from the white kids to do just that, decenter their whiteness. One black boy, teenage boy, shared that in his academic experience, he has noticed that teachers call on the black kids less. And everybody nodded in that in that Zoom room. <laughs> it was just shocking to hear that. Is that something that is still happening regularly? And are you is that part of your work when you're dealing with schools? Absolutely. Both. It is still happening and it is a lot of my work. And we also know that students of color are over-disciplined disproportionately. We know that Black students in particular are viewed as being older than they are, and so they're treated more harshly than others. And yes, it is happening, and it is a lot of the work. And that's deep work on behalf of teachers, but it really just requires not just, it's not a simple thing, but it's also not as hard as people think it is. Allowing somebody into your space to just observe you for a while. Not like one time, because we can be very performative in the one time, but for a while and over time, and really being open to these are the number of students I have in my class, the number who identify as being of color, look at how many times I'm calling on them, look at how many times I'm calling on the male, female, as much as students will share their identifiers. And at the same time, those teachers working on their own anti-bias and anti-racism work. So partnering those together, along with co-constructing with students. I mean, schools are in an era, like you said, you know, the kids are doing a better job than us. And I think that's true in everything. I'm always asking kids what I should do. They have better ideas than I ever would. You know, we know that in the last 20 years, all the social identifiers have had more significant movements than any than the 80 years before. And I know that from my research. And so we have kids who've grown up with a different understanding around gender, race, sexual orientation, and, and much more than we did. But we're also in a time in schools and in parenting where we're not expected to have all the answers anymore. Educational pedagogy and parenting practices have shifted so that we don't have to be the all-knowing person. We don't have to have all the answers. We're supposed to be co-constructing, it's the word I use all the time, we're supposed to be co-constructing school spaces and family spaces with kids. And that doesn't mean kids are in charge, but it means their voice matters and their experience matters. When you relieve yourself of the burden to have to have it all together and have all the answers, and you recognize that historically and research-based, we know that white teachers call on students of color less, and we know that students of color are disciplined more. So don't spend time debating that. That's a fact. If you put those two pieces together and you're doing your own learning, now you can really create an environment where we can affect some change. So just to pivot a little bit, the kids are doing it better than we are, and they're also very impatient with us and even angry with us. So how do we kind of navigate that fear of getting it wrong outside our own homes and now inside our own homes? Like that journey and that movement requires missteps to get it right. And it feels like an assault sometimes when you get it wrong, both with our kids and outside of our homes. Yeah, I mean, the the fear of making a mistake is one of the ones that I hear most often that people are talking about, you know, I'm afraid I'm gonna mess it up or I said this and I messed it up or whatever the mess up is. It's a gigantic space and it is it has asserted privileges all over the place. 
The fear of messing it up has made it so that we aren't engaging in conversations we need to be engaging in. And I think it's an assertion of privilege status to say, I'm not going to work on this or I'm not going to talk about it because I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. Like that's a privilege status that we shouldn't have. So I think there's a couple of things we can do. One, acknowledge that we will make mistakes. First of all, that's how growth happens. Two, to have the conversation with our children, with our students, to say, you know, I didn't grow up talking about this in this way. I grew up that I couldn't say that I had privilege because that was also saying I was I was racist. And I'm, you know, all the other things that you grew up with. So I'm learning. And that means I'm learning from you and with you. And I'm going to make mistakes. And let's talk about the capacity in our relationship for mistake making, because that's a skill kids need to have. They need to know how to, and so do adults, but they need to know how to have some grace with somebody who's making a mistake and learning. We know, and I turn it to my students all the time, and I'll say, you know, if teachers say to you, no, you got that math problem wrong, you're never going to get it, they're not going to feel like they can engage in math. But if the teacher says, you got this problem wrong, let's sit with this, let's figure this out, and then the teacher says, and I'm going to look at how other strategies for how I can support you, that's a different conversation. So it needs to be a both and. I think adults also have to understand that because kids have grown up with these different awarenesses of social identifiers, they are impatient with us because it's their perception that we should have been affecting change a long time ago. And I say it's their perception not to minimize their belief because I also believe we should have been affecting change a long time ago. But I also want, it's important for them to know and to understand that this history is an emerging conversation and not because of dismissing it or getting us off the hook, but because history repeats itself. And I want my students to understand that, and my kids to understand that when you shut people down, they don't want to engage in growth. And when you come at people, they don't want to engage in growth. But if you can meet people in the middle and then have high expectations of them and hold them to high accountability, that's how growth happens. So we, it's funny, I'm sitting here thinking of and Sue um, referenced the discussion we did and my daughter just turned 18 and she didn't want to participate because she was so nervous that she was going to get it wrong. And I didn't know what to say in that moment because I thought, yeah, she might she might get it wrong. But I think what I'm hearing you say, and I'm thinking about just our audience and parents, is that we should say to them, you might get it wrong and you you can own that and say that to your friend and maybe add to it. And I want to get it right. That's why I'm here. But I, I, I may fall along the way. I would take it a step further. I would take it that I will mess up. Yeah. I will make mistakes and I'm doing my own work. And when I make those mistakes, I'd love for you to tell me or, or get that information to me. I'm a white cisgender, meaning identified as female at birth, live as a female now, heterosexual, middle-aged, middle-class, diversity practitioner. And so I start off, you know, I was nervous about starting in this field because I thought, what do I have to lend to the conversation? And I reached out to my amazing mentors and friends, and they kept saying, We need everyone in this conversation, but you need to acknowledge that you don't get it. And so I start off my workshops every time saying, these are my social identifiers. And I understand that I have the privilege to be able to tell you them because I I have freedom from harm. And that also means that I understand because of my social identifiers, I have ascribed privilege, except for being female. 
that means I have greater spheres of bias. So when I show I don't get it, not if, but when, I invite you to let me know. You don't have to educate me. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. I will do that my work myself. So that is a constant invitation. And the first probably 150 times I said it, I got really nervous and <laughs> anxious and, and kind of hoped that they wouldn't say anything. And then, you know, like the next 150 times I wasn't nervous and still hoping they wouldn't say anything. And now I'm kind of hoping they will say something so that I can I can grow from that. But I think we just have to name it and own it. The sooner you own where you are, the better, the quicker you can move from that place to another place. That's great. And so well said. So it's a great segue in terms of what can people, what can we do to participate in change? And a follow-up to that is, do I have to give something up as a white person? So one, I guess it's hard to say exactly what you should do, except do your own work and continue to engage and join conversations and don't live in your echo chamber get outside of your echo chamber and make sure that you are thinking about things thoughtfully with the language you'll use and carry that language with you as you move through spaces. Really resist performative allyship, meaning I'm going to go to a protest for Black Lives Matter, but then I'm not going to do my own anti-racism work. So really focusing on, on resisting that performative piece. And then thinking about where do I go from here? And and does this mean, will I have to take something away? So the reality is, is that privilege, it's, it's not a pie. It's not like, and that's a saying that you see in a lot of protests. It's not like if you take one person's privilege, it's taking from somebody else. There's enough for everybody to have equity. When I think about this, I always go back to my really little, little students who were talking, um, they, were, they were four and five, and they were helping me to develop a workshop for the trustees and the parents on privilege. And so I said to them, you know, shouldn't shouldn't the older kids get to go out to the swings first? And they said, no. And, and I was like, why not? And they go, because that's not fair. And I said, why? They're older. Many of them are bigger. They've been here longer. Why shouldn't they get to go outside first? And the kids were like, that's not fair. That's not fair. And I said, so that's age privilege and perhaps size privilege. It means that you get to do something that you worked nothing for. They didn't think that was fair. And so we actually met with the other class and we figured out some kids will go out, one class will go out earlier one day and then the next day and we flip back and forth. And then when I was talking with them, I said, so now imagine when you're in that class, won't you want to get to the slides first, the playground first? And they said, yes. And I was like, yeah, because privilege feels really, really good and it's hard to give it up. But what are we going to, how do you think those kids will feel? So I say all that, first of all, four-year-olds can get it. Anybody can get it. And then they said, you know, you need to write all this down because we can't read yet and we want to remember next year. If you think about privilege as something and bias as, as constructs that are part of, in this case, racism, which is just a social construct, then there are things we can do with, we can take care of, we can address it. These are not fixed facts that need to define the history of the country going forward. And so at this point, we're either in the process of affecting change in the history or we're not. And affecting change in the history of this country by breaking down barriers between groups and establishing more equity, meaning everyone gets what they need, we're all going to benefit from that. So it's not taking away from, it's giving to all. If you are a white privileged man, you are going to lose in this story. So when we say you don't give something up, you do give something up, but we think it's better for society as a whole, so therefore better for you as a whole. But there, but there is 
only one president of Ithaca College. And that woman went through the Posse Foundation and is now president there. And there's never been a a minority female president there before. The reality is it is a zero-sum game on on a low level, on a personal level. In our public school, uh, my friend's daughter applied for a job And the public school, like without anyone paying attention, became very diverse, but the faculty didn't. And so this year, they made a commitment to hire five Black teachers. And so this kid didn't get a job. Now, the kid was fine. The mom was pissed. The mom said, you know, really seriously, just because she's not Black, she didn't get a job. And the kid said, yeah, that's right, because there should be a Black teacher for those Black kids and white kids to see. I understand why we have to put your story forward, that... It's not a zero-sum game, but in reality, for that person, they do give something up. I will expand on that. I'll expand on that in terms of the piece that I was going to add to that is a lot of education is required in doing this work so that we need to help people understand why, how racism has worked, how sexism has worked, how the fact that things are going to feel differently for some people is making it, the is equating with the experience that many people have had. It's also going to, I mean, it's growth, growth doesn't feel good. Change doesn't feel good. If I go to the gym every day and I work out every day, I'm not coming home, you know, feeling fabulous about that. I'm feeling like, wow, that was hard. At least that's what I should be doing. Actually, it's worse before you go. <laughs> <laughs> Some things will change, but that doesn't mean that it's, I can't think of the word. It doesn't mean that everyone's lives will be worse. I mean, it's just, it's hard to explain, but I, I do know that, you know, in 2014, we started shifting to the, to the last majority baby was born so that the demographics in this country started switching from majority white to people of color. And there are some sociologists who are really looking into the rise of visible white supremacy around that same time. And so I wonder you know, if we could get in a room and have conversations about how we could affect change for everyone, then, and took that same energy for that instead of fighting to hold on to something that many people aren't experiencing anyway. You know, if you think about white privilege and and the socioeconomic correlations that sometimes go with that, there are a lot of people who are experiencing white privilege, but not socioeconomic privilege. So they aren't always going together. Okay. So I'm going to, shift here. I'm not going to ask the question I was going to ask about Keith, even though I think it's such a good story. I want to share a quote by Lila Watson, which I think if we can wrap our heads around this, it will kind of address the issue of, I can't remember what the word is, when you're trying to be a hero. What's the word? Oh, saviorism. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, there is this kind of appeal to signing up to be a, be a tutor or be part of a program that helps, you know, an, a kid from an underserved community. And some people, my kids included, call that saviorism. Like they, they feel like it's like a tick on a box to do something good. And I heard this quote once and, and I, I'm not sure I'm living up to it, but I think it's so beautiful. If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And it's attributed to a woman named Lila Watson. Yeah, and that's a, that is a perspective that is so deep and true. If we are working on behalf of others and not with others, then first of all, we're, we're missing what they might need, which is how we are going to shift society. We have to do our work and do the work for the whole. 
And I, I think about, you know, how often I'm thinking about a while ago, I was a school counselor and it was there was a massive snowstorm. All these schools started collecting snow supplies, snow clothing for a local shelter. And the local shelter called and they said, we don't even know what to do with all of these. We don't have kids who need these. We need books. We need food. We need money. We need beds. We need blankets. We need socks. And that's very much the mindset of a lot of people. And it comes from a good place. It comes from, I want to do something. And that's important to, to pay attention to and grow. But if we're doing something in order to get those rewards, which does fall into white saviorism and saviorism in general, and, if, and you know, if we're doing it for those rewards, then we're doing it for ourselves. Even if we're affecting good work, even if we're doing good work, if we're doing it primarily for those rewards, then it is more for ourselves. And so it needs to be a both and looking at, you know, really listening to folks and understanding that the systemic racism of this country is everybody has has had experiences with it, experiences on a regular basis. Racism does affect everybody. There's no way around that. And so the more that we look about at how our histories are entwined together, they're built upon each other. That means so that our history going forward, we must be together so that we can create a new narrative. That means really listening and talking and asking and then being quiet and sitting next to questions. That means creating the capacity in a relationship with someone so that they can tell you what they really need in a person or a community and what they need from you, and then you being there in that space to work for the better of all and not for for yourself or for others. And I had a friend who said, if you're going to Black Lives Matter marches and posting them on your social media, then I want to know what you're doing tomorrow, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, to focus on Black Lives Matter. And I don't think it's wrong to go to Black Lives Matter marches or to post on your social media, but also what work are you doing on a daily basis? How are you raising your kids to be anti-racist? And what does anti-racism mean in your house? How are you raising, how are you yourself focusing on your anti-racism? These are all the pieces that affect change in the long run. Excellent. Thank you. So we're going to end with the question we ask all of our guests, which is what is the biggest myth about parenting teenagers? I think the biggest myth about parenting teenagers is that we don't see them as contributors to the, the narrative of their lives, meaning that we can decide what, you know, we set the rules, we set the guidelines, and then within that, we should give a lot of space for consideration. The piece that correlates with that is how often parents tell me that their kids know what their values are and how often kids tell me that they don't know what their parents' values are, and they hear the value conversation more in terms of what are not the values so really listening to kids, especially around these conversations, because kids today have a very, as, as I've said several times, a very different viewpoint on them. And we can learn a lot from them. We need to sit down and listen to them and really support where they're coming from rather than trying to fit them into our narrative. So in these ways, they have beautiful insights into uh, what they see the future being. And, and I feel like we need to join with them more rather than decide for them. Jen Court, this was so inspiring. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you. It's an absolute privilege. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. 
Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 